Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. And if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you'll know that during our lockdown here in New Zealand, uh, the podcast became pretty sporadic, lots of space between episodes, uh, perhaps for you to um, ponder. I was just giving you more time to reflect on the important uh, issues. Um, and then the last episode came out and kind of we're back and up and into it. And then no sooner did that episode come out than, uh, hey, all here in Auckland suddenly plunged back into another uh, lockdown. So uh, what a crazy, weird, unpredictable time we are living in. All the words you've heard on repeat since this pandemic began. So I'm back spending a lot of time with um, 18 month old now, little Rufus. And um, he's a bundle of fun, but he is a little exhausting. Uh, anyway, here we are with another episode. And... Um, and this time we feature a conversation, uh, again, with Dr. Nicola Hoggard-Cregan. Uh, and this is an interview I actually, we had, we had a conversation much earlier in the year, just before the first lockdown hit here in New Zealand. And um, just getting to, to bring it to you now. And Nicola is, a, Nicola is a theologian based in Auckland. She's co-director of the New Zealand Christians in Science. Uh, she's the author of Animal Suffering and the Problem of Evil. Uh, and has a long-standing interest in science and faith and also eco-theology. And, and our conversation in this episode is, is really exploring, again, differing views of God in, in line with the series we've been doing over recent times about divine intervention, the nature of God's relationship to the world, and so on. And so we talk about that. We talk about the depth of wonder within nature and what that might open up, what possibilities that opens up for us, maybe the subtlety of God, the role of empathy and cooperation in the evolutionary process and how that might open up space again for, for theology to explore. Uh, we talk a little bit about the idea of evil and uh, and some and some chat at the end about prayer. So lots of things to explore in this conversation. Um, before we jump into it, uh, a quick reminder that you can support the ongoing work of this podcast and make it more possible for it to continue by going to patreon.com slash in the shift and you can jump on there, become a monthly financial supporter and um, other as well as uh, getting extra mansions in uh, heaven. It'll hopefully build some resource over time, which means I can devote more of my time to this podcast, um, get it pumping out more frequently, uh, get some in the shift events and and resources online up and happening. So there's a bunch of other stuff I have in mind that I'd love to be able to do if I can. So if you want to support what we're doing here in the podcast, then head to Patreon, look us up and uh, go for it. And of course, as always, if you have any questions or you want to get in touch, you just want to share stories or experiences or insights or whatever it might be. Uh, get in touch by email at michael at intheshift.com or you can just go to the website intheshift.com and get in touch with me through there and you'll also find a blog there that I write as well. So, hey, there you go. There's my self-promotion for the day. So, let's jump into the interview uh, with Nicola and uh, see how we get on. This is episode 36 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. I'm here with Dr. Nicola Hoggard-Cregan, uh, and Nicola is a, what shall we say, a theologian, uh, exploring conversations between theology and science in particular, has done a significant amount of work on evolution and the way in which this might impact on our theological reflection and conversations about God and humanness and where we find ourselves within the wider cosmos. 
So uh, thanks so much for making the time to talk today. Thank you. Um, I wanted to start with this because I guess we're doing a series in the podcast at the moment mm. on divine intervention, really trying to explore what we think about the way God relates to the world. And it's a big thing for many people because it's often the source of big questions, especially if crisis or pain hit. Um, and a lot of this also comes back to our view of God and what we actually believe about God as well. Um, so if we kind of start there, if we think about your view of God, <laughs> which might seem like, a, you know, it's a very, um, that's a big question, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But, but if you like, there's, there's a kind of spectrum between uh, people who have a higher power out there somewhere who maybe, maybe was involved at the very beginning and then has left things to, to run their course, a kind of deism, uh, right through to a people for whom God is uh, always about to break in and do something. And so the, the, the spirituality can become sort of trying to find the keys to unlock those moments mm. of, mm. of breakthrough, whether it's more faith or mm. more giving to televangelists or whatever it might be. Mm. Um, where do you see your view of God sitting in relation to maybe that whole kind of wide spectrum? I mean, I do think the grammar of our understanding of God is is problematic to start with, isn't it? Because it assumes that we can model God, which of course we can't. Um, So I'm always resisting that. But at the same time, you know, we are creatures of models. (laughs) We can't help but but be always um, doing that. Um, my, my first discipline was mathematics, so I think I'm very aware that um, a discipline, even like mathematics, which you might think was easily able to be um, founded on logical principles, can't be. You know, there are paradoxes at the heart of mathematics. And I think there are paradoxes at the heart of faith as well. It's not that we sort of need to play that card straight away, but I think we need to be very careful when we think we've got a model. But to get back to your original question, um, the question about, it's interesting that you put um, the deist God on one side and the intervening God on the other side because I would put them both on the same side. Right. Now, so you've got the deist God who sets it all up and then you've got the intervening God who set it all up but gets a bit antsy at times and comes along and <laughs> interferes. Yes. But, but essentially a sort of correcting God, so shall we say. Mm. Um, and then at the other end I would put, um, you know, Pantheism, panentheism, mm-hmm. and then a bit, you know, process theology as well. Um, so that I would sort of see a spectrum, and I still think, you know, spectrums are not that great, but I would sure. see it that way. Yeah. And so I would be, I suppose, wanting to have it both ways, <laughs> 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 um, to have God imminent in everything and also transcendent, which I think Trinity helps a little bit with. And also perhaps to be defining God, you know, in the way in which people do, you know, like Catherine Tanner, et cetera. Um, that know that transcendence simply means that the actions of God are non-competitive with ours and non-competitive with the laws of nature. And that's what transcendent means. So God can be acting all the time but God's not a finite creature and so God is not compete, competing with us. And I suppose the other 
way of approaching this is the whole idea of ontological difference, which you get from the continental and the theologians. Right. So absolutely maintaining that. And can you explain that a little bit? The, when you, well, when you know, they ontology. keep sort of insisting, you know, that the being is, um, you know, th- th- that whatever divinity is, it's so ontologically different from, you know, from finite being that we can't really ever get to it except indirectly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you see this in someone like Rowan Williams, whose book, you know, The Edge of Words, mm-hmm. talks about, you know, the metaphoric nature of all language, but especially as it relates to, to God, and that we're always pushing the capacities of language to the limit. And we run into problems when we stop being aware of that and sort of over um, overdefine our understanding of God, I think. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you get something like Okay, that. so I just want to jump in here for a moment and say this idea of God being non-finite and therefore not competing with us this, um, you might not immediately get a sense of what's going on in that conversation, but we do come back to this later in our discussion to unpack it a little more, so stay tuned for that. Uh, in the meantime, I then wanted to ask Nicola about the presence of wonder and depth and perhaps even God in the natural world and how we might start to think about and, and, that. And I do think it's important that we, we see God in nature in whatever way we do it, whether we do it through scientific um, enterprise which just keeps surprising us and therefore leads us to wonder or whether we do it because we're out in the natural world and we see its beauty. Um, There are some people who are sort of acutely aware of the glory of God in nature all the time and some of us who just see little glimpses every now and then. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think the 20th century abandoned nature (laughs) is a very big statement, but I think it abandoned nature as a source of our understanding of God. Mm. Understandably, because there was a huge conflict with you know, Darwin, but we've been left very deprived in terms of our understanding of God. Mm. I think, yeah, because for most of us, nature is a huge source of our sense of wonder. Mm. Mm. Um, one of the things you have written about. Um, which is always, you know, challenging to bring up because I forget half the things I write. Exactly. And then I read them later exactly. on. I'm like, oh, did I say I should that? I should oh, not have said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. I either read it and I think, that's, that's not bad, or I read it and think, oh, exactly. yeah. Um But one of the things you, you wrote was you talked about if God does somehow encompass all of creation, mm. um, then nature itself is, is imbued with the mm. divine. Mm. Uh, but you say that that can make it, in some senses, less accessible than we might expect because it's so imbued with the divine mm, mm, that there's, mm. in a sense, less access to actually discern that. Can you can you explain that a little bit? Yes, um, insofar as, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, well, I think that, you know, the thing about scientific exploration of nature is that it keeps opening up new depths. You know, so... At one stage, we might have thought, oh, my goodness, we've cracked our understanding of life. We've got the genetic code. And then we discover, well, you know, there's all this sort of co-option happening and there's sort of the way in which primates evolve is by transpositions and insertions and things like that, you know. And and then we discover that viruses are really important and and it just gets stranger and stranger, Mm. you know, and whatever we think we understand there's a new level to understand it at and 
of course that's true with physics, you know, where which is just about as strange as theology can possibly be. And it's extensive. You know, it's just mind-boggling. We can barely think about, you know, a universe. It's as huge as the one, and it might only be one of many universes. So I think that, and in some ways, you can't help but think it's mind-like. And it's so difficult, you know, for us to get any kind of a grasp on mind And similarly, I think it's difficult with the natural world, which, of course, we're part of. And so I don't think it's inaccessible because obviously, you know, what's one of the great miracles is that we actually can interact with nature and we can know so many things and we can know these surprising things. You know, within a few months of the COVID virus being around, we know its genetic code, we know how it's operating, um, you know, which is absolutely staggering that we know all of that so quickly. So I'm not at all saying that nature is inaccessible or that there are any holes, you know, in the sense that, oh, we can't go there because that must be God. I'm saying that the deeper you go, the deeper you think, well, my goodness, that's strange and that's interesting that it's this way and (laughs) how did it come to be this way? And so you open up more and more depths of wonder as you learn more, I think, Mm. that is what I mean, yeah. Uh, there's there's been I suppose a scientifically even a shift from you know in the in the modern era the, of Newton and mm. essentially the the world mm. the universe is like a machine mm. that yes, operates yes. by these very defined yes, right. laws yeah. and rules yeah. uh, and therefore mm. when you try and relate God to mm. that you've then got a God who has to in some ways come in and yeah. break those rules yes, at some right. point yeah. from outside yeah. mm. um, whereas it seems that the scientific conversation is now opening us up to recognise that the universe is very different from a machine in, in the sense that it's much well, I think, you used you know, I think that conversation mind. is now possible. Mm. Um, but I think the machine metaphor has certainly sort of held us captive for a long, mm. long time. Mm. And because of that, you know, we, we, we sort of tend to think that we in our consciousness is the only thing that stands above you know, machines. Yes. And then we think, well, maybe our, mach- our minds are like that too, you know, are really very complicated machines. So I think the machine has been a very powerful tool because it's allowed us to understand how things work, but it's taken over our understanding of ourselves. Mm. You can sort of see... Right, so as this conversation continued with Nicola, I really wanted to dive into a discussion about evolution. Uh, this is where Nicola has done much of her work. And sometimes we end up in this either-or camp where either... Uh, God must have been directly involved in some kind of really obvious uh, interventionist way, or it's science and evolution and materiality, and there's no room for any kind of God talk. So I wanted to ask her about this and ask about even the process of natural selection itself and how this kind of seemingly competitive and and sort of death-oriented or competition-oriented uh, mechanism and evolutionary process can be compatible with faith or what do we do with that whole conversation? Where does cooperation and empathy and love fit in and so on? So uh, that's where we took the conversation next. One of the challenges for uh, people who are trying to discern a, a God who might be present and, and active is to say, well, if yes, if everything arrived here, if we arrived to this point just essentially through sort of bloodthirsty competition, you know, we, we got here because we were able to either survive or... Um, because of some particular evolved capacity, or uh, wipe out our um, competitors through some kind of evolved capacity, and that's sort of that's how things move forward essentially mm. through yeah. through competition and yeah. and and death. Um, 
then it can be easy for someone to look at that and say, how well, how can this loving God that you speak of use be have that as the primary process through which to bring something about? So, what are the changes that you're seeing in that conversation that um, away from yeah. natural selection, um, if you like? I mean, you've mentioned a couple already. Yes, but. well, I mean, yes, I have mentioned a couple, but also, I, I mean, I think the um, the whole idea that uh, there are other things going on at the level of the constraints. You know that that evolution also is sort of, is is flowing over the constraints of physics and chemistry as well as, mm. as everything else. And that a lot of what we see is a sort of randomness, is a sort of searching behaviour that, um, that is searching within constraints, you know. And Simon Conway Morris uses the um, example of the Pacific people, uh, Polynesians, um, finding islands in the Pacific, which is an almost impossible task, mm-hmm. you know, but they – they had a sort of method for getting back, you know, so they, they had a, a way of exploring in a sort of seemingly random way this, um, this vast array of islands in, in an empty ocean. And so there's lots of sort of metaphors like that that, that really help. Mm. I think the fact that, you know, I think the, the, um, the way in which the human genome was, um, was mapped and then subsequently other, that of other species as well, has really been very interesting because you know, the human genome is a very ordinary size of somewhere middling, you know, in terms of plants and animals. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not. And yet the original sort of understanding of evolution that people had in their minds was sometimes, you know, you, you get a bit more complexity this way and then a bit more information this way and then a bit more, you know, and it all, mm. we should have had a huge genome. Right. But of course we don't. And it allows us to sort of see what's going on is really this sort of very interesting sort of movement of bits of genes around and, you know, chromosomes and insertions from viruses and, you know, that half of our genome is virus and at least, you know, for example, it's right. very interesting. Yes. So all of that complexity, I think, really helps the, the um, theological conversation to be not just about, you know, the rolling of the dice and uh, do we survive or not, mm-hmm. yeah, which is a very impersonal sort of way of, of understanding the question. Now, of course, still it is true that, you know, um, if you don't survive to reproduce, <laughs> then you don't survive to reproduce. Sure. That is kind of selection. Mm. But it's a selection within very interesting constraints. Right. Yeah. And so how do you see the possibility of God present in that conversation? Then You say it, it, it opens up some room for some yeah. Yeah, yeah, theological yeah. possibilities. What are some of those I think the depth is what's, um, what's really interesting, that – the depth sort of makes you really wonder. For example, Graham Finley works on this, has done a lot of work on the placenta, you know, in human beings. And the placenta in mammals, I mean, especially in mammals, is what allows, you know, the embryo to develop within the mother and then you get this bond with the embryo. And some people have argued that that's why we, you know, are cooperative. You know, mammals are more cooperative and nurturing is because of this bond. But the, ma- the placenta seems to le- need three sort of viral inserts, and one in particular, but, you know, a few others as well, to produce the, you know, the specific um, gluey stuff that holds the placenta together. Right. And, yeah, I mean, you think, well, you can describe this and it's all, you know, it's not like God's come along and on zap at all, but it's an extraordinary process. It's, mm. you have to step back and say and be in awe of this and, how did the genome know to co-opt it, you know? And again, it's not because God's coming along and doing it. It's because the whole process is sort of so 
extraordinary and, as I said, perhaps even mind-like. Mm. And that, I think, is where the pro- that's where I think the conversation with theology becomes very interesting. And again, it's not something that compels belief, but it is something that allows belief mm. and makes it rational. And it fits with you know the you know the wisdom literature, which talks about the subtlety of wisdom and mm. penetrating all things, entering into all things. Mm. And then the cooperative thing as well, of course. Yes, you so wouldn't really a expect a completely brutal process, <laughs> and then to be consistent with Jesus coming along and saying, "Turn the other cheek." You know, you just that doesn't make any sense. But it does make sense if that is our inner. You know, if, the, if there is an inner propensity towards that already in, you know, all mammals or all creatures to some extent. Um, because, you know, we can't always be overcoming one's, one's inner nature, if that makes sense. Mm. I mean, we can't, if we, if we had no propensity at all to, to love and nurture, it wouldn't be any point in saying do it. If we do have, then there is. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we can we can be asked to remember our best nature, our inner nature, our, our nurturing propensities, rather than you know the ones to, that to envy and and oppress. Mm. And so, I think it's very important that there is this long history of of nurture and cooperation within the mammalian um, line. And that, I mean, perhaps there's some similarities between some versions of natural selection this is maybe a a strange correlation mm-hmm. and and versions of christianity which prioritize depravity above all things you know that humans are kind yes. of uh, fundamentally mm. depraved and evil which is the kind of a certain christian stream would would prioritize that as the way of understanding where humans are at mm. and there's a kind of almost a similarity to the to the uh, more hard evolutionary conversation, mm. which says human beings are fundamentally kind of violent and, and yes, competitive. Yes, I mean you're right. And um, Professor Andy Gosler, who came last year, um, was um, our conference speaker. He gave a talk about the ways in which you know evolution is often formulated in cultural in terms of cultural memes, you know, so that, that, I mean, that fits, you know, both with the sort of mechanistic understanding but also with, the, you, you're right, the sort of um, depraved nature that you get from, from Calvinism. Yeah. And in, in either of those then, the, the human journey is one of, of trying to overcome, uh, like you are referring to before, or fight against your more natural or base instincts, whether they because you've evolved that way or whether because um, some mysterious event in the past has, has unfortunately made us all that way. Um, if we think about spirituality or, or faith that recognises that there's something deeply cooperative, loving, empathetic and nurturing mm. about mm. humankind, um, mm. do you think that opens up a different way of starting to think about Faith or, or, the, or where spirituality yes. meets us? Yes, I do. And I think humans are capable of is extraordinary acts of cooperation and love and also extraordinary acts of, of depravity. And we seem to sort of straddle those two. And we're always trying to keep the, you know, the depravity, extraordinary acts of depravity at bay and encourage, you know, the, um, the 
the love and, 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 and altruism. And so I suppose, you know, and you all the way through scripture, you see, you know, all these encouragement to do, to do good, you know, and, and to act well and to love your neighbor and all those sorts of things. So I think that that's where, um, you know, where faith comes in is that we have words for that struggle and we have um, resources for that struggle. You know, the resources are in prayer and in the community of Christ and in the body of Christ and all of those sorts of, um, you know, obeying the Ten Commandments, loving your neighbour, all those sorts of things. You know, so we're constantly reminded and and encouraged to do those things. We're constantly um, learning from Scripture and hearing Scripture so that we don't forget. <laughs> and and then they become internalised and they become a part of the way in which we relate to the world. So, but I don't think it's something which is come, coming along to sort of overcome some total depravity. You know, it's something that comes along and says, no, this is how you can act. Do act that way. You know, and you have the resources to act that way. And, you know, you have the resources of God and of the Spirit and of Christ, you know, to, to act this way. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think the whole total depravity thing is very interesting because if that were really the case, you would find that Christians were the best people in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And having been saved from yes, depravity. Yes, that's right. Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. If we if we step back a little bit and we think about uh this idea of God perhaps being involved in subtle and sometimes even hidden ways in the process of evolution, for example, how does that help us think about how God might or does it help us think about how God might interact with us, with the world? Um in a, in a broader sense mm. as well. Mm. Do, you think there's, mm. do you think there's helpful resource there in that conversation? I don't think we know how God is working in the world. And again, I think we always are trying to model it. But I do think that God does act, but not in a way, not as not as a finite creature. And I think we forget that we're finite creatures and that you know, finitude um, has all sorts of conflicts and um you know, we can't, we're always in competition with one another. We can't sit in the same place. We can't do the same thing. Right. But that's not true with God's action. And so God isn't acting just like another creature, um, but that God, that somehow or other when we cooperate with God in prayer or in action, it does potentially open up possibilities that would not have existed before in the world. Mm. I want to come back to this idea because I think it's perhaps quite a helpful one in terms of, you know, God not being a, a creature like we are. Mm. Because I think when, when people try to imagine, conceive of how God might um, act mm. in their particular situation mm. um, and then wonder perhaps why it is obscure or hidden mm. or, or so often doesn't seem to take the shape yeah. that they would expect, yeah. it's perhaps because the expectation is that God will act upon us like another yeah. creature acts upon exactly. us. Exactly. As finite creatures, we can never be in perfect relationships to everything around us, so that's going to cause suffering. Right. Um, and So because you and I can't inhabit yeah. the same space, yeah. for example, mm. we might end up yeah. conflicting over that chair. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Because we both want to sit. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, <laughs> And and I think that's true in an evolutionary perspective as well. You know, that so that not all creatures can can evolve in the way that the peaceable kingdom suggests. You know, 
is, is perhaps an eschatological future. Um, because finitude just um, precludes that. And then, you know, the other common one is, you know, is freedom, that you, know, you have to allow bad things to happen because of freedom. And, and I'm not totally convinced by that, although I think there is some, some truth in that as well, that um, God can't go, come along always sort of interfering and, and you know, because that's not the way I understand God to be acting anyway. But things do seem to get terribly wrong sometimes. You know, we get horrendous evil and we get periods of history in which we just think we're cursed. And we might, you know, it sometimes feels like that right now. Um, so what what is going on? And I suppose, you know, I very, very cautiously sort of say that I think that as well as all these other explanations, which are never really explanations, but perhaps suggestions for why um, things are going on, is that, is that, is that there is such a thing as evil, you know, that, that sometimes that what humans do seems to go even beyond the limits of human malice. We seem to end up in in periods of history and in actions which are horrendous beyond even our, our intentions. And, and sometimes, you know, it's the intentions are good even, but we end up in these holes. And so, I mean, I would take seriously the powers and principalities of evil, but then you're going to say, where do they come from? And I'll say, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, and that, that part of the part of the role of the Christian and of the church is to resist these powers and that part of being human is to be uniquely open to both good and evil. And, you know, that you see that mm. then happening, that... Mm. It's, it's in a sense humans participate in paths of evil that are beyond us, I feel, at times. Mm. But none of that is an explanation. I think it's just um, these are sort of ways of in which um, we can think about these things. Mm. And I suppose I know that the whole thing about taking evil seriously isn't very popular these days, but um, that's where I would differ from people like Christopher Southgate. Mm. Yeah. I wonder whether evil is harder to take serious. This, uh, not sure if this is true or not, mm. but perhaps harder to take seriously when you live in a relatively, um, relatively peaceful part of the world. Um, you know, Miroslav has talked a little yes. bit about this, even, and yeah. in, in, mm. in terms of growing up within mm. Yugoslavian conflict, yeah. it does. Highlight to you different things about the human condition and about what God Absolutely. might be like than, I think that's than living in kind of middle class suburbs somewhere in a in a nice city. Totally, um, I I agree completely. Mm. Um, on the other hand, I, I think that you know as theologians, it's our task to keep alive the memory of things like the Holocaust, mm. Mm. and we have to we have to theologize knowing that this has happened, mm. you know, and that similar things are happening now and have happened. In the past, mm. and we can't theologize from a from a middle class Western point of view. Okay, so again, another comment here, and that's the, this idea of evil and evil powers, and even the devil. I feel like it's probably a conversation that needs to be had in more depth, and so we may come back to this topic 
in future episodes, uh, maybe even have a series exploring evil. That sounds like a refreshing time, doesn't it? Uh, but we want to you know, look at different ways of thinking about evil, what's going on there and so on. But um, as we finish this conversation, I just wanted to ask Nicola a little bit about prayer and how her views of God shape the way that she thinks about prayer in light of uh, what we've talked about so far. Just a question coming back to something like prayer, which is often where uh, the rubber meets the road. Prayer. Yeah. Well, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of this thing, well, a lot of the conversations that I've had with people over the last few years, especially for people who have been in some kind of, uh, whatever word you want to call it, a, a deconstruction or an unraveling or a mm. rethinking of mm. things or a trying to make sense of their faith mm. in light of a bunch of stuff that, mm. that's maybe come up for them. Um, and it, it, one of the big questions that's come up is I'm not quite sure how to pray anymore because I don't know if I can ask God to <laughs> do that thing. Can I still ask God for my car park outside? I did get, amazingly, a, a car park immediately outside, which obviously uh, hashtag favour, um, blessing and so on. But, you know, um, for people maybe who've come from a spirituality where they pray asking God to do every, mm. all mm. sorts of things all the time from mm. car parks mm. and, and mm. clothes on sale right through to serious events of please heal my mm. father or... Mm. or or whatever it might be. And then a bunch of big questions come along and I don't know what to do with all of that anymore mm, and mm. so I don't even know. Mm. Do I do I, do I I just enter into a more of a stillness and meditative space with my prayer or do I still ask God to do things as such? How do you, how do you feel about that kind of question? I know, I think it's a very good question. I think we have to keep on praying through these questions. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but, and, and I agree with you that... I know I experienced the same sort of thing. I think 9-11 really uh, did it for me, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not, which is not very rational, but it, it really did. Um, Were you there at the, still at that time no, in the US? No, I was just here. Right. Um, but, um, you know, I just, just left America six months before that. Mm. And, um, yeah, so it meant a lot to me. Mm. <laughs> But just the idea, you know, that all these Christians were on all these planes mm. praying mm. and how could it still mm. um, turn out the way that it mm. did? You know, I think it's one of the most extraordinary acts of evil in the world. Mm. Um, so I think we have to just keep praying. As I said, I think that especially when we pray together with other people, you know, that um, there is this opening up of space that... Um, that would not have been there before. And sometimes we can feel it and sometimes we can sense it and sometimes we can see it and sometimes we can't, you know. Mm. And I don't think really God minds if we ask for things, you know, as long as we can understand when we don't get them, <laughs> um, which is the hardest part, of course. Of course. Mm. Mm. Well, thank you. You're welcome. It was a very I interesting really, conversation. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's really interesting yeah. and I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks very much. Thank you. Okay, so that's our interview. That's uh, where we finished, and I hope you really enjoyed it and found it uh, interesting, insightful, helpful perhaps. Uh, thanks again for Nicola for being so willing to talk. Thanks, as always, to Reese Michel for his help on sound massaging the audio experience for your brains and ears, and we'll be back with another episode of In The Shift very soon.